Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world right now. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. And if you like this episode, please do subscribe. I'm so excited about our guest today, Dr. Bruce Grayson. If you don't know who he is, Dr. Bruce Grayson is one of the primary founders of scientific study of near-death experiences. Dr. Grayson is the world's leading medical expert on near-death experiences and the continuity of consciousness. Dr. Grayson is Professor of Psychiatry and Neural Behavioral Sciences at the UVA School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the Universities of Michigan, Connecticut and Virginia. He was co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. His award-winning research led him to become a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and to be invited by the Dalai Lama to participate in a dialogue between Western scientists and Buddhist monks in India. Dr. Grayson is the author of After a Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. The book offers answers about the mysteries of life and death and includes several of the most dramatic first-person accounts of near-death experiences. This is his story and this is his passion. Dr. Grayson, I'm so honoured and excited to have you on Passion Harvest. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Louisa. I'm so happy to be here with you today. <laughs> it's an absolute honor. So let's dive right in. I'd love to, um, it's a big question. What happens when we die, when we leave, you know, when, when our physical body dies? Well, that is the good question, uh, yeah. Louisa. Uh, you know, when I talk to people about near-death experiences, they always start off by saying, I just can't describe it to you. There are no words for it. So then I say, great, tell me about it. You know, so, so, I know I'm making them distort it by putting it into words and they end up using metaphors to describe what happened to them. So they may talk about being in a meadow or being in outer space or being in some heavenly environment, but they're talking about metaphors. They're not describing literally what they experienced. They almost universally tell me that they are in a environment of unconditional love and well-being and safety. And that seems utterly convincing. So I think the answer, as far as I'm concerned, is that our consciousness does not end when our bodies die, and that whatever comes after our bodies die is something not to be feared. But the actual details of it, I have no confidence that I know what's going on. In fact, I suspect that what happens after death is something so far beyond what I can imagine that I'm going to be very surprised. That's a, that's a wonderful attitude to have. I kind of have the same one as well. <laughs> um, I guess in the concept of times, you've, you've re done so much research on near-death yes. experiences. Is there a particular case or cases that stand out for you? You know, I hate to pick one out because each one is yeah. so fascinating to me. You know, I'm a psychiatrist 
And I am I love hearing people's stories and what happens to them. And what interests me most about the NDE is not the experience itself, which is mind-blowing by itself, but how it affects people's lives. You know, I, I've, I make my living trying to help people change their lives, and it's very, very difficult work. And here this, this experience comes in in a few seconds, totally transforms their attitudes, beliefs, values, behavior, and I don't have any tool that's anywhere near that powerful. So I have great respect for the power of this experience, and that's what's most impressive to me about NDEs. And uh, uh, you're the expert. Generally, people are fundamentally changed after the oh, near-death yes. experience. Yes, yes. In what yeah. ways are they fundamental? What ways are they changed? They usually become very much more aware of the spiritual part of their nature. And whether they had a spiritual life before this or not, they come back saying, I'm much more spiritual than I ever was before, by which they mean they feel connected to the universe, to the divine, to other people. They feel much more compassionate and caring about other people. And this plays out in their behavior, which is much more altruistic than it ever was before. And you know, this they also become much less concerned with uh, things of this world, material possessions and power, prestige, fame, competition. And this sounds like it would be a fantastic change, but it actually creates a lot of problems for a lot of people. Uh, for example, I know a lot of people who were uh, career military or uh, police officers who could not continue uh, their jobs. For example, one fellow I knew was a, uh, a sergeant in the Marines. And that was always his goal in life. Yeah. And he was serving in Vietnam and was shot in the chest and had uh, shrapnel throughout his lungs. And he was aerovac to the Philippines to a hospital. And during an operation there to clear out his lungs, he had a beautiful near-death experience. And when he came back from that, of course, he went through rehab and was sent back into the, into the jungle. And he found he could not shoot. The idea of killing someone was just so abhorrent to him, he just couldn't do his job. So he ended up having to leave the Marines, which had always been his goal in life, and came back to the States and retrained to be a medical technician. And I've heard this again and again and again from policemen who retrained to be healthcare workers or teachers or social workers, uh, from cutthroat businessmen who felt that getting ahead at someone else's expense no longer made sense to them. And they either gave up their businesses or changed how they did business and treated their, their customers and their, their employees much more compassionately. I've also known career criminals and addicts who were totally transformed by a near-death experience and gave up their way of life. So that to me is the most impressive part of the whole experience, how it changes people's lives. And, and so almost they wanna be in service to other people. Exactly, exactly. And that too can create problems because I know a lot of near-death experiencers who when, when a crisis came up, comes up like a, a hurricane or a, uh, a, some other natural disaster or, or a bombing, they will just take off at the minute's notice, leave their families behind and go to where the accident was and, and try to help. And their families left behind feel, you know, mm. what happened about what happened to us? Right. Don't you care about us? And this is most uh, pointed in uh, children of near-death experiences who feel that their parent no longer loves them more than anybody else. And that can be very harmful to a child. Have you done research on um, the families of near-death experiences and what they think of their potential mother or their father and how they have yeah. fundamentally changed? Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, you know, a lot of them have strange reactions at first. They either uh, think that the, the, the loved one, whether it's a, 
a spouse or a parent or a child um, has had some kind of a, a psychotic episode or uh, hallucination. Or, um, and when they see the, the changes that persist in the experiencer, they start taking it more seriously and they may respect the experience and start trying to understand what's going on with this. Um, they may not like the changes. And in fact, if the, the marriage or the relationship was based on material goods or on something other, other physical thing, um, the marriage may break up. But very often the spouse and the family will adjust to the near-death experiencer and start changing the whole family structure. And the whole family becomes much more spiritual uh, as a result. Um, I should say that they don't become much more religious. Mm -hmm. uh, many near-death experiencers say that they feel at home in any house of worship of any denomination, and that no one religion really understands fully what the deity that they experienced was like. It was much greater than anything that the church has ever told them about. And, I mean, obviously, I certainly haven't talked to as many people of near-death experiences. You, have you had, but they... they continue to remember the feeling often we forget yes. emotions after a time whether it might be childbirth or all, all sorts of experiences right. but they don't forget it that's right that's right you know all all memories are subject to change over time and the memories fade over time and a lot of the near-death experiences we hear are from people who had the experience years ago sometimes decades ago so we had reason to question are we really getting off the right story mm. well i've been doing this research for so long now but I've been able to go back and recontact people I interviewed 40 years ago and ask them to describe their NDE to me again now. And what we found is that there's absolutely no difference. There is no fading of the memory of an NDE over decades. And that's unique among, among memories we have of any other experience. That's absolutely remarkable. And what remarkable work you're doing as well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, often near-death experiences come back or they say they come back with certain gifts or spiritual gifts or talents. Do yes. you mind discussing that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they usually feel they're much more empathic, um, much more in tune with, with other people's uh, feelings, emotions. Um, and that may or may not be a, a paranormal experience or just, mm -hmm. just a heightened sensitivity to other people. Um, but they often feel like they can, uh, understand things before they're about to happen, um, sort of see things unfolding before they're about to happen. They often have a sense of when someone is going to die before that person may know it. Um, and these, again, can cause problems for the near-death experiencer. It's not nice to know when someone's going to die. What do you do with that information? Um, and often the things that they feel like they know in advance are not pleasant things. They're disasters about to happen. Um, I've had lots of near-death experiences tell me repeatedly that they know when there's going to be a plane crash or an explosion. And I've told them, well, tell me about it in advance so I can document what's going on. And they have, and they've told me specific things. Um, but what do you do with that? You know, you can't call up the FAA and say, there's an Lockheed F-1011 that's going to crash at uh, you know, Dallas airport tomorrow at one o'clock. You'd probably be arrested if you did that. Um, so they're kind of stuck with these, these, this foreknowledge that they can't do anything about. So how do you explain these? Well, I guess there's two elements to this future premonitions during yeah. the near-death experience and the ones that as it come as a gift afterwards. How do you explain yeah. that? Well, I'm not sure I can. Okay, um, <laughs> good answer. 
No, I'm, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm rooted in the empirical world, and we just don't have explanations for this. Uh, this calls for uh, an explanation that's beyond our ability to, to understand right now. If you want to call it spiritual, it's certainly a non-physical process that's going on. You know, most near-death experiencers say that in the world of the NDE, there is no sense of time. That time as we know it is a function of the physical world. It doesn't exist in the other realm or the other dimension. Um, so that you can experience everything at the same time during a tough experience. Um, you know, this is, when I'm listening to people talk about their NDEs, I say, look, you're telling me this happened, then this happened, then this happened, as if it's a sequence. How can you have a sequence without time passing? Great question. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> they tell me, you know, as I'm sitting here now talking to you, it's a paradox. But when I was actually living it in the NDE, it wasn't a paradox, it made perfect sense. But it doesn't make sense now that we're back here in these brains trying to think through it logically. Our logic and our language can't understand the NDE. Um, this is obviously, I kind of think I know the answer, but are there commonalities with the near-death experience in general? Is there a white tunnel? Are there lights? Yeah, there is a commonality. And it goes across cultures, across religions, across centuries. You know, we only, not only have accounts of NDEs from around the globe now, but we have accounts from ancient Greece and Egypt, from ancient uh, cultures and other places as well. We have accounts from uh, Native American cultures that the uh, French fur trappers took in the 1600s, 1700s. We have accounts from Polynesia and they're all the same from every culture. Um, now how they describe the experience, how they understand it may de be determined by their cultural metaphors they, they choose to use. But almost everyone feels a sense of overwhelming peace and well-being. They may feel greeted by a warm, loving being of light, which they may or may not put a label on. They often find themselves in some other unearthly realm or dimension. And some of them describe going through a long, dark, enclosed space to get from this realm to the other, which Americans call a tunnel. Okay. Um, but I've talked to people from other cultures where there aren't a lot of tunnels. They, they don't use that. They may say, I went through a cave or I fell into a well, uh, but they will not say tunnel. I talked to one fellow who was a truck driver who said he got sucked into a large tailpipe. So okay, okay. whatever metaphors you have most available mm -hmm. to determine how you describe the phenomenon. And likewise, the, the being of light, uh, most Westerners will call that God, whereas Easterners will not. Uh, they will use some other term or just not describe it at all. And in fact, most Westerners will say, I'm going to call a God so that you know what I'm talking about, but it wasn't the God I was taught about in church. It's much bigger than that. But it was something that, that loved me and that understood me. And you can call it God, Allah, Krishna, all there is, the source, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's beyond words. Um, beyond that, many near-death experiences report reviewing their lives. And they often report that their entire lives were available to them um, in minute detail. And they experienced things, not just saw them, but experienced them in much greater detail in the life review than they did in their actual lives. For example, one fellow told me that he relived an event from his childhood in which he could actually count the number of mosquitoes in the air buzzing around him, which he couldn't have done when he was a child. Mm -hmm. uh, but reviewing it was in such exquisite detail and it, in, in time that could stop and he could count these things. Um, and these are things that are common 
across NDEs, across cultures, across ages, genders, religions uh, that are very common. And yeah, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. Why do you think some people have, I'm not going to use the word ne negative near-death experience, but, but experience traumatic death experiences, purgatory yeah. or hell or... Yeah, you know, it, this, this points out one of the problems with research. When we first started doing this research back in the 1970s, 1980s, we were relying on people coming forward and telling us about their NDEs. And all we heard were the blissful ones. Nobody came forward and, and said, let me tell you about going to hell. Um, because when they started hearing about near-death experiences, they were thinking, well, all those other people are talking about pleasant things. Mm. I had a, a bad one. What's, what's, the matter, what's the matter with me? Am I a bad person? And they didn't want to talk about them. And it wasn't until we stopped relying on, quote, volunteers coming forward with their NDEs and started looking in hospitals and interviewing everyone in the hospital who had come close to death that we started hearing about the unpleasant ones. And we did find them. And most researchers who have studied this estimate that between one and 5% of near-death experiences are unpleasant. Now we suspect that's an underestimate because there are still probably a lot of people who don't want to talk about these experiences. Yeah. They're just, uh, they're embarrassed by it. They think something, it says something bad about themselves or they're just too painful to try to relive or they may feel it's too personal. They don't want to share it. So I think there are more out there that we just haven't heard. As for why some people have them, I don't know the answer to that. It's certainly not the case that bad people have bad NDEs and good people have good NDEs. Um, I've known people who were on death row who had a heart attack in prison and had beautiful near-death experiences. And I've known people who lead apparently saintly lives and had terrible experiences. And this should not surprise us. I mean, there are accounts from Christian mystics about going through the dark night of the soul, having terrifying experiences, uh, you know, St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila. Um, so we know that, that saintly people can have terrifying spiritual experiences. Um, you know, John, uh, Joseph Campbell rather talks about the hero's journey mm. where you have to go through these travails to get to eventual enlightenment. And that may be part of what's going on with these unpleasant near-death experiences. In fact, there are people who start off having an unpleasant NDE and they find them terrifying and they try to fight against it. And eventually they get exhausted and just surrender. And as soon as they surrender, it becomes a blissful experience. Yes. So what was the terrifying part was the resistance to it rather than the experience itself. So it's so fascinating. And in your research, what have you learned about life before birth? Ah, uh, before birth. Before birth. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I, I, can, I can go there. Um, okay. You know, the, the things that I, that I study, I try to focus on the parts that can be corroborated. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, when people claim to leave their bodies in, an out of, in a near-death experience, I look for things that they saw and heard around the body that they couldn't have possibly seen or heard that we can corroborate. Right. Or when people talk about seeing deceased loved ones, I look for information from those loved ones that we can corroborate that no one else knew. When you talk about life before life, that's really hard to corroborate. It's hard, you know, people talk about being in some other dimension before life, and that's not something we can study scientifically. Now, there are occasional people who talk about past lives mm -hmm. in their near-death experience, that in their life review, it wasn't limited to this life, but it included facts from a previous life. 
And those potentially are things that we can corroborate, but there are very few of those. And I'm not sure we have enough to really say much about them. Very interesting. I have to ask, I mean, I guess this is personal. What fascinates you about near-death experiences? How, how and why did you get into this research? Um, I got into it unwillingly. Um, you know, I was raised in a materialistic scientific household and I grew up believing that the physical world was all there is. Uh, when you die, that's the end. And that's, that was fine with me. That's just the way life is. And I went through college and medical school like that, thinking everything was going to be explained by physical science. And then in my first weeks of psychiatric training, I was confronted by a patient who had overdosed and I was sent down to the emergency room to evaluate her. Um, I was actually sitting in the cafeteria having dinner when the page came in and the page went off on my belt and, and scared the dickens out of me. I was a new <laughs> intern and I spilled some spaghetti sauce on my tie and I tried to wipe it off and I couldn't. So I just put on a white lab coat to cover it up. So I went down to see this patient and I couldn't arouse her. She was totally unconscious, but her roommate was waiting to see me in a different room uh, to describe what happened to the patient. So I went down to see the roommate, uh, talked to her for about 15, 20 minutes about what was going on in the patient's life and so forth. Um, it was a very hot Virginia evening and I was sweating. They didn't have air conditioning back in the seventies. So I unbuttoned my lab coat, exposing the stain on my tie uh, and then talked to her. And then when I got up to say goodbye to her, I realized I had done that. So I quickly buttoned it up again um, and then went back to see the patient and she was still unconscious. Uh, she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And I went to see her the following morning when she had awoken. And I went to see her and I introduced myself. She was still very, very groggy. And I, as I started to say who I was, she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that kind of startled me. So I said, you know, I, I thought you were um, asleep when I saw you last night. And she opened her eyes and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate. Wow. That just blew me away. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. What did you say? <laughs> I just sort of stammered for a while. You know, as far as I could tell, the only way that could happen is if she had left her body and come down with me. And, you know, as far as I know, I was my body. How can you leave it? It made no sense at all. So she picked up that I was sort of stumbled by this. And, and she then proceeded to tell me about the conversation I had with the roommate, what I had asked, what the roommate said, where we were sitting. And finally, she said, and you had a red stain on your tie. And that just blew me away. I didn't know what to say. So I said, the only thing I could think of, I said, what? You know, um, but I realized that I had a job to do there. I was trying to deal with her problems, not with my problems. So I kind of pushed my thoughts out of the side and just focus on her for a while. And then the days that followed that, I tried to make sense of this and I just, I just couldn't. And I tried to tell myself this was a trick somehow. Uh, the nurses were playing a trick on me, you know, trying to make, make a fool of the new intern and yeah. somehow they arranged this. I couldn't imagine how, because none of them knew about the stain on my tie. So I just kind of pushed that out of my mind for a while. And it wasn't until about five years later that Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described what they were like. And that was my first inkling that what this patient had told me about was not just one isolated event, but part of a worldwide phenomenon. And it really was something that I couldn't understand, and yet it was there. And it would not have been scientific to pretend it wasn't there, to push away and say, I'm not going to deal with this. You know, science progresses by looking at things we don't understand. So I started thinking 
I need to try to understand this. So I started collecting cases and here I am 50 years later, still trying to understand it. What a beautiful story. I mean, with that story, there's no doubt that in some way her consciousness was not in her physical body. Right, right. I don't know how to explain it any other way. You know, I wish that I knew then what I know now so I could have asked her more questions about it, but I just, I just didn't know. Have you ever asked. contacted her again? No, no, she was totally lost. Um, she was a, a first-year student at the university and she dropped out of school and I never was able to track her down. Interesting. And, and so all this, what, 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 all this wonderful work that you're doing, the near-death experience research, what is the significance of it for humanity? Oh, well, you know, as much as these things tell us about the possibility of life after death, many near-death experiences say that what's more important is what they tell us about life right here on this, during this life. Um, they come back with this strong sense that we are all part of the same thing. We're all interconnected. And many of us get this from um, the sense of, of, of love they get from the, the being of light. They feel we're all part of the divine. We're all part of the same thing. They talk about it as being like a wave in the ocean. You're a distinct entity. You're the wave. And yet you're made of the same stuff the rest of the ocean is. And you will eventually go back into it. Um, and yet others say that it came from their, their life review. Many people have this life review in which they see things not from their own perspective necessarily, but from other people's as well. I'll give you a specific example of this. Uh, one fellow, was a, he was in his 30s when he was working under a, under a truck and the truck fell and crushed his chest and he had a near-death experience um, and he relived his entire life. And one incident stood out in my mind when he was a teenager and he was driving his truck down the street and a drunk man ran out in front of his truck and almost hit him. And Tom, this teenager was furious uh, because the guy almost dented his truck. <laughs> so he, he, he stopped the truck, rolled down the window and started yelling at the man. And the man being quite drunk, reached his hand inside the truck and slapped Tom across the face. Well, that was too much for this uh, young kid. So he opened the door and got out of the truck and started beating this man mercilessly and left him a bloody mass on the uh, median strip, got back in his truck and drove off. Well, he said that in his, near, in his life review, when he relived this, he saw through his own eyes, his fury, his rage, his adrenaline rush, but also through the eyes of the drunk man, the humiliation, the embarrassment of being beaten up by this young kid, the 32 blows of the fists on his face, uh, feeling his nose getting bloody, feeling his teeth going through his lower lip. And he felt everything this man was feeling. And when he came back from his near-death experience, he came back saying that we are all the same. And what you do to somebody else, you do to yourself. And many near-death experiences say this is one of the lessons of the NDE. It's basically the golden rule, which is a precept of almost every religion we have. You know, you should not hurt other people. What you do unto other people, you do unto yourself. When you hurt someone else, you hurt yourself. When you help someone else, you help yourself. But near-death experiences say for them, it's no longer just a guideline that we're supposed to follow, but it's, they realize it's a law of nature, like gravity. That's just the way things are. And they come back with a sense that what makes life meaningful and fulfilling is living it, living this like this, as if we're all the same. 
as if we're all interconnected and you can't hurt someone else without hurting yourself. You can't help someone else without helping yourself. I just love that. That's, that's so beautiful. <laughs> um, what would you say to people that are afraid of death? Hmm. That is very common in our society. Yes, it is. People are afraid, number one, of dying alone. Uh, number two, of their life ceasing after death. And number three, of maybe being punished after death for not having lived a proper life. And what I would say was that the evidence from near-death experiences is that what happens after death is not something to be afraid of at all. People describe it in a different way, but they almost always agree that it is a beautiful experience. You're accepted, you're loved, you're, you're, you don't, there's nothing to be forgiven. Uh, you're just accepted for the way you are. You certainly uh, are aware of all your mistakes when you go through your life review. And you may feel the pain that you've inflicted on others, but they aren't sins the way we imagine a sin. It's not something you have to be punished for. When you go through the life review, you experience the consequences of your bad acts, but you're not punished, you're not judged by anybody else, judged just by yourself. So that what happens after death is really something not to be feared, but to be welcomed. Most people who have an NDE say that they are no longer afraid of dying. They're looking forward to dying. Now, that doesn't mean that they want to kill themselves. Yeah. You know, when I first heard this as a psychiatrist, I thought, we better not tell people about this. It's going to make them suicidal. <laughs> so I did a study of this, and I interviewed people who were admitted to my hospital with a suicide attempt. And I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt and those who didn't. And what I found was that those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal than those who didn't have an NDE, which seemed counterintuitive to me because they're no longer afraid of dying. Mm. And when I asked them why that was, they said, when you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living. You're not afraid of losing your life because you know what comes after is better. So you're not afraid of taking chances and jumping with both feet and enjoying it to the most and you know, getting the most you can out of life. And, uh, you know, if that means taking some risks, you do it. Um, and they find life much more meaningful, much more enjoyable, and much more fulfilling than they did before. Um, now, this sometimes causes problems for doctors, I must say, as a doctor myself. Because when someone has a heart attack and doesn't have an NDE, uh, they become much more frightened of dying. Right. And when you tell them, you better stop smoking and cut out fatty foods, they do it. When you tell a near-death experiencer, they say, wait a minute, I like smoking. I'm not going to give it up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you potentially get asked this question. I do a lot based on your research. What is the purpose of us being here? Why are we here? Is there an end goal? That's a great question. You know, I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did know the answer to that. Most near-death experiences come back saying that there is a meaning and a purpose to everything that happens here. Um, and it is part of something that is related to the meaning of what goes on in the other realm as well. But when I try to pin them down on, well, why do we come to this physical realm? If something's so great over there, why do we need the physical world? And I don't get a concrete answer to that. It's usually something vague like, 
There are things you can learn here in the physical realm that you can't learn elsewhere. Maybe you need the adversity we have here that you don't have there in order to learn things, but I don't really fully understand uh, what it is. And I don't think it's something they can put into words that I can understand. But there does seem to be some reason why we are here. It's not just a random event. Yes, I mean, I, I don't think anything happens by accident. I've asked all the I've asked all the questions and you've just offered so much insight. Is there anything you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you, Dr. Grayson? Well, one of the most mind-blowing things to me is, is the accurate out-of-body perceptions that we have. You know, I told you about the story of, of the, that first patient I had who saw the stain on my tie. Amazing. Um, I, I don't give that a lot of credence, actually. I mean, it, it was just mind-blowing for me uh, emotionally. But in terms of a scientist, um, I didn't have any way of corroborating what was going on. You know, I didn't go and ask every nurse there whether they had seen the, ta- the stain and, and told the patient. You know, I, I just didn't bother to, uh, to, to corroborate it. Um, but since then, I've talked to many, many patients where I was able to do a scientific analysis of what they said. And I'll give you an example of that. One fellow was a, a 55-year-old truck driver who was admitted to the hospital with um, acute chest pain and had emergency quadruple bypass surgery. Uh, four of the vessels around his heart had to be uh, replaced. Um, and in the middle of the surgery, he said that he left his body and was hovering above the operating table and saw his surgeon flapping his elbows like he was trying to fly. Now at that point, when he told me this, I've been a doctor for about 30 years. I'd never seen a surgeon do this, never heard about it. You don't see doctors on TV shows doing that. So I couldn't imagine how he got this bizarre idea. I assumed he was hallucinating because of the anesthesia or something. So I said to him, this doesn't uh, really sound like it was a real thing to me. He insisted that, no, it was, it was definitely real. You can ask my doctor. So with his permission, I, I did talk to his doctor and his surgeon said, yes, that, that is true. Um, I've developed this strange habit that I've never seen any other doctor do. While my assistants are starting the procedure, I get my sterile gown and gloves in. I walk into the operating room and then I watch them start the procedure. And I don't want to touch anything that's not in the sterile field. So I place my hands, flat palms against my chest so I know I won't touch anything. And then I point things out to them with my elbows so I won't touch anything with my fingers. Oh, he illustrated wiggling his elbows around. And um, somehow the patient knew this. And I don't know how he could have possibly known that, but everyone else corroborated, yes, the surgeon's the only one that does that. And there's no way the patient could have known about that. He had just come into the hospital immediately before the operation on an emergency basis, didn't know who was gonna operate on him and somehow knew this. Um, I also have have, have, uh, more striking examples from um, people who saw deceased loved ones and came back with information they shouldn't have had. Now, when, when I talk about near-death experiences seeing deceased loved ones, most skeptics will say, well, of course, that's just expectation, wishful thinking. You think you're gonna die, so you imagine being met by deceased loved ones. Of mm-hmm. course, everybody would do that. Yeah. And that may be an explanation for some of these cases, but there are a number of cases where people see deceased individuals who were not known to be dead at the time and that eliminates the possibility of expectation. We have cases of this going back to ancient, ancient Greece and Rome. 
Pliny the Elder wrote an elaborate uh, case of this in the first century. But the one that was most striking to me was a fellow who was a 25-year-old um, technical writer who was admitted to the hospital with severe pneumonia. He had repeated respiratory arrest where he couldn't breathe. And his primary nurse who worked with him every day was a young woman about his age. And one day she told him she was gonna be taking a long weekend off and there'd be other nurses substituting for her. So he said goodbye to her and she took off. And then that weekend while she was away, he had another respiratory arrest, had to be resuscitated. And during that arrest, he had a near-death experience. And he found himself in this beautiful pastoral scene and there walking towards him was the nurse, Anita. He did a double take and said, you know, Anita, what are you, what are you doing here? And she said, uh, you can't stay here. I want you to go back to your body. And I want you to tell my parents that I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. Oh. And then she turned and walked away. Well, he later woke up in his body in his hospital bed. And he told the first nurse who walked into his room about this near-death experience. She got very flustered and left the room immediately. And he later learned that this nurse had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents surprised her with a red MGB for her birthday. She got excited, jumped in the car, took off for a drive, lost control of the car, smashed into a telephone pole and died instantly, shortly before his near-death experience. There was no way he could have expected her to have died and certainly no way he could have known how she died. And yet he did. So, you know, there are a lot of explanations put forward to explain in terms of physiology, how we can have NDEs. How can physiology explain the way people get this information uh, that, they, that they couldn't possibly have known? Amazing. Gosh, I almost need my tissue box out for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and again, there are many, many, many cases of this. You know, Jan Holden, a professor at uh, University of North Texas, uh, analyzed about 100 cases of out-of-body experiences where people have reported things that could be corroborated. And she found that 92% were corroborated by third persons as being completely accurate. So we're not talking about a rare event here. These are common experiences. Just, just remarkable. And I mean, I love, obviously you're a scientist, but you are pursuing the unknown, which is Well, that's amazing. how we learn things. That's how yes. we learn things. Well, some people don't. So I, you know, have to congratulate you for that. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I still Sorry, please go ahead. I was going to say, the, the, the attitudes have changed among physicians uh, in the decades that I've been doing this. When we first started talking about this at medical conferences back in the 1980s, there'd be a polite silence in the audience. And most people thought we were uh, being fooled by a few patients or just making it up ourselves. And now when we talk about these things in medical conferences, doctors will stand up in the audience and say, let me tell you about my experience. You know? So it's, it's very, everyone knows that if they happen and that they're very common, there's still a lot of controversy about what causes them, what their ultimate meaning is. But doctors and nurses generally know that these things are happening to their patients and have profound effects on them. And therefore they wanna know about them. I was just gonna say, I could see in the background your book after. Yes. Yes. It's beautiful. I love the butterfly on it. Big congratulations for the book. Thank you. Thank you. Where can people purchase the book? Uh, anywhere you can find a book. Uh, okay. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any, any bookstore has them. Uh, my website, www 
BruceGrayson.com, that's Grayson with an E, um, has links to all these sites and uh, information about near-death experiences and so forth. And for anyone that's listening or watching, I'll put your links in the show notes as well. If people have had near-death experiences, and do they con- can they contact you? They certainly can, yes. Okay. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. I'm honoured and it was such an insightful delight and I can't wait to re-listen to this episode. Thank you, Louise. It's been fun talking to you. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye-bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.